You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Warnings and advice about Emotet and Bluekeep both being actively used or exploited in the wild. Two new carding bots are in circulation against e-commerce sites. Expect more of this as criminals test stolen credentials in advance of the holiday shopping season. Amazon fixes a security flaw in its Ring doorbell. My conversation with Wired senior writer Andy Greenberg on his new book, Sandworm. And a Long Island company is charged with selling bad Chinese security systems as good made-in-the-USA articles. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, November 8th, 2019. The Australian Signals Directorate is urging enterprises to look to their defenses against Emotet and Bluekeep, which are showing renewed levels of attention by threat actors in the wild. Emotet is the widely deployed malware that emerged in 2017 when a criminal group, TA-542, also known as Mummy Spider, used it as a banking trojan. It went into temporary eclipse earlier this year, but resurfaced on August 22nd, and by September had resurfaced with a bang as a multi-purpose trojan. Proofpoint says in its third-quarter threat report that Emotet alone accounted for 12% of the malicious email samples they looked over that quarter. It's fallen off a bit this week, but it remains an active threat. And so, the ASD's Australian Cybersecurity Centre and its state and territorial partners is advising everyone to be on the lookout for Emotet. They recommend blocking Microsoft macros from all but the most trusted sources – backing up systems daily, scanning email contents, and segmenting networks. The Australian Cybersecurity Centre, if you're unfamiliar with it, fills a role analogous to the one GCHQ's National Cybersecurity Centre has in the UK and to those filled in the US by the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate. The other warning ASD issued pertained to Bluekeep, which has given people the willies since the discovery that it's being exploited in the wild. To be sure, it's only been confirmed to have been exploited to spread a cryptojacker, but that's been startling enough for many. The Bluekeep vulnerability affects Microsoft's remote desktop protocol. It's been patched for months, yet, as Bleeping Computer points out, the enterprise patching rate for this particular vulnerability is about 83%, a big majority, but on the other hand, surprisingly low. Home users have probably patched at far lower rates and are probably proportionally more vulnerable to exploitation. Microsoft is again reminding people to patch. So why so much fuss over a cryptojacker? Well, for one thing, cryptojacking is an irritant in its own right, a resource hog and just an untidy mess. But Bluekeep worries people most because it's wormable and because they remember the widespread and costly damage 
the WannaCry pandemic wreaked against a sister vulnerability, Eternal Blue. Bitdefender, while acknowledging the potential risk, has posted some notes they call debunking, but that might, with equal justice, be called reassuring. Their point is that this risk is manageable. They suggest three steps. One, patch. Two, mitigate the risks of remote desktop protocol, perhaps by configuring remote desktop service with network-level authentication. And three, maintain strong network attack defenses. As the holiday season approaches, new attacks on retail and e-commerce begin to take shape. Security firm Perimeter X has found two new carding bots, CanaryBot, which exploits major e-commerce platforms, and Shortcut Carding Bot, which exploits card payment vendor APIs, bypassing e-commerce websites. This form of carding, Perimeter X notes, aims at validating cards by making small purchases. CanaryBot is interesting for the way it mimics user behavior, filling a shopping cart and heading for the online checkout. Yes, we know the holidays do seem to creep up. Some of our retail stringers say they see Halloween stuff on the shelves as early as August, and that includes candy, which, well, just doesn't seem right. But this kind of holiday creep is understandable, at least from the criminal's point of view. While the traditional start of spend-it-like-a-sergeant-on-payday holiday shopping in the United States is the ill-omened Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, forward-thinking hoods like to be prepared, as if they're Boy Scouts from the Upside Down or some other malign dimension. Anywho, they're leaning forward in their foxholes and getting ready for the holiday crime rush. Arcos Labs is seeing some of the same things that have come up in Perimeter X's research, Arcos' own third-quarter report shows a 70% increase in bot-driven account registration fraud as the gangs test their stolen credentials in advance of the Christmas rush. Bitdefender reports finding a flaw in the Amazon Ring doorbell security system that could expose users' Wi-Fi credentials. They disclosed it responsibly to Amazon, and Amazon has pushed an automatic security update that fixes the problem. So Ring users should be out of the woods. The U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York has filed charges against Long Island-based Adventura Technologies Limited. The government alleges that the company sold Chinese-made security and surveillance equipment falsely marked as made in the USA. The charges cover fraud, money laundering, and illegal importation of equipment manufactured in China. In effect, this amounts to a hardware supply chain problem. The systems Adventura sold may not have been strictly speaking counterfeits, but if the government is right, their origins were misrepresented. The agencies cooperating in the investigation suggest the scope of the alleged fraud. The FBI, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the Internal Revenue Service, the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, the Inspector General of the General Services Administration, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, and the Inspector General, U.S. Department of Energy. Whew. An update to the case of alleged infiltration of Twitter by persons working on behalf of Saudi Arabia saw a new development overnight. One of the men charged, the Telegraph reports, worked at Amazon for three years after leaving Twitter. Ahmad Abuamo, the one defendant in custody, moved to Amazon from Twitter in 2015. There's no word on whether he or his alleged confederates were up to anything at Amazon, but Mr. Abuamo's work history suggests the difficulty of detecting 
malicious insiders. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Michael Sechrist. He's chief technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton, and he also leads their managed threat services intelligence team. Michael, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on supply chain attacks. You had some information that you wanted to share about uh, preventing those kinds of attacks. What do you have for us? Sure. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on. One of the uh, things that we're seeing is is sort of uh, third party and fourth party risks being a, a significant concern for enterprises. There is growing number within the ecosystem and IT environments of vendors, and vendor management has become a top concern for security professionals. One of the aspects of that it, that that falls on is is how do you secure your ecosystem when you're dealing with so many significant parties that have access to potentially critical data, critical assets within your enterprise. One of the things we're working on with with those clients is to work to profile uh, the the client's enterprise uh, and, and identify sort of where are those critical nodes and mm. links for the, for the enterprise with, the, with those vendors and providers. And so we do that by doing sort of baseline profiling, assessments, sort of risk pr- uh, prioritization and mitigation strategies. And we implement those uh, with the clients in order to build up their program awareness and their visibility into their entire ecosystem. How do you recommend that organizations go about sort of 
dialing in how far down that chain to go. It goes pretty far. Um, I don't think it's the ability to kind of just be reliant on a, a questionnaire or a survey is going to satisfy concerns or kind of the security risks that are present today. It's going to take actual baseline profiling of, you know, which IP addresses uh, potential vendors are using in order to relay or have some sort of communications with your IT environment. It's going to be the exact sort of software that has to be downloaded, the versions that are being used, how software packages get updated. Those type of uh, details are very important today in order to identify anomalous activity. What are your recommendations for people getting started with this, kind of starting that journey of trying to get a handle on what's going on with their supply chain? Top priority is understanding your critical risks and where your critical data and assets lie. Uh, Without knowing that, it's going to be very difficult when you're looking at your, your vendor ecosystem, so to speak, and identifying which ones or which, which vendors you want to make sure you have a very strong profiling of. You know, without that sort of internal linkage, uh, you're going to kind of maybe have to boil the ocean, which is going to drain resources and be kind of inefficient over the long term. All right. Well, Michael Sechrist, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. My guest today is Andy Greenberg. He's a senior writer at Wired and author of the 2012 book, This Machine Kills Secrets, which was a New York Times editor's choice. His latest book is titled Sandworm, A New Era of Cyberwar and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. In it, he tells the story of the Olympic destroyer malware and how security researchers traced it so far they could attribute it to Russia's FSB. It's that rare combination of meticulous history lesson and thrilling page-turner. That's part of the story of the book, is that the world did not really react to this series of attacks that just got more and more aggressive and indiscriminate. The West, including the U.S., really just watched these attacks unfold in Ukraine and treated it as somebody else's problem. You know, this is Russia's sphere of influence. We've sanctioned them for their illegal war. We don't need to say anything. You know, it seemed to be the attitude about these unprecedented attacks. I mean, you would think that the first time in history that hackers actually turn off the power to civilians, that the U.S. government would want to say something about that. Like, hey, uh, that's a red line that maybe you shouldn't cross. Or, you know, this is a reckless act of indiscriminate aggression against civilians and will not be tolerated no matter who the victim is. You know, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. But nonetheless, it seemed to me that this was the sort of red line that we want to establish in cyber war. And yet nobody said anything, not after the first blackout and nor after the second. It seemed to me that this was what allowed these hackers, Sandworm, to escalate with impunity until they released what became the worst cyber attack in history. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Dragos, and uh, one of the characters throughout your book is Rob Lee, um, who I've spoken to many times on the CyberWire. Um, and, and sort of a running theme through the book uh, that uh, Rob shares his frustration with uh, our response, or, or I suppose you could say our lack of it. Yeah, Rob was one of the kind of Cassandras, not quite a whistleblower, but some sort of like one of the researchers who spotted what was going on early and tried to sound the alarm. 
I think that John Hulquist at FireEye is another. And then the Ukrainians, of course, were, were trying to tell the world, too, that something dangerous was happening here. And I think, you know, they did even say to me that what happened in Ukraine seems to be bound to spill out to the rest of the world, that what Russia was doing to them in Ukraine, Russia was, would sooner or later do to the West as well. And there was a kind of precedent for that because Russia had hacked the Ukrainian election, tried to spoof the results, actually, and just barely kind of um, failed. The Ukrainian Central Election Commission caught the fake results just in time before they were posted on their website. And then Russia meddled in the U.S. presidential election. At this point, we were seeing Russia mess with Ukraine's power grid. And the kind of logical conclusion was that maybe they would try that against targets further abroad as well, just as they had kind of tested out election hacking in Ukraine. I, I initially wrote a story for Wired that kind of made that prediction. It came true far more quickly than I expected in the form of NotPetya. We published this story, the cover story in Wired, that essentially said that what happened to Ukraine should not be ignored because it would eventually spill out to the rest of the world. And the day that it hit newsstands was the day that NotPetya hit, a Russian attack on Ukraine that within hours spilled out to the rest of the world and became the worst most expensive, devastating cyber attack ever. Well, let's dig into NotPetya. You know, you mentioned earlier that this notion that um, people were saying that these attacks would spill out into the rest of the world, and that is what happened with NotPetya. NotPetya was, of course, this this worm that looked like ransomware, but wasn't. It was just a destructive wiper that seemed to be targeted at Ukraine, but was entirely reckless in its scope. It spread initially via this Ukrainian accounting software, but that accounting software, Medoc, was used by really anybody who filed taxes or did business or had partnerships in Ukraine. As I'm sure everybody who listens to the show knows, it first hit Ukraine. It really carpet bombed the networks there, but it immediately spread beyond Ukraine and hit a long list of multinational companies like Merck and Maersk and FedEx and Mondelez. And you know these are massive multinationals. And in each case, it did hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, kinds of numbers that we had never seen anywhere before, totaling to $10 billion in total damages, according to a White House assessment, which is more than we'd seen, you know, even in WannaCry the month before. And again, the, the global reaction in terms of uh, additional sanctions or, or punishment or any sorts of action against Russia were what? Well, initially nothing. And that was so vexing to not just me, but I had been speaking to people like John Hulquist and Rob Lee, who had been warning about this group and the Ukrainians. Now I felt like I was part of this weird club of Cassandras who were saying, watch out, this group is dangerous and its attacks are escalating and will hit us sooner or later. But then they did hit us in the West. I mean, Merck eventually lost $870 million to Nantetia and they're in New Jersey. This is an American company. And yet, in the wake of Nantpetya, it took eight months for anyone to call out Russia as the aggressor. That includes like all of these companies who are simply totally unwilling to name Russia as the source of this attack that had devastated their balance sheets. I thought I was going crazy. I followed this group for a year at that point. I could understand in this kind of cruel logic why the West would ignore these attacks on Ukraine. You can make this kind of realist argument that that's Ukraine's problem, it's not our problem. But once NotPetya spilled out and it hit all of these Western targets as well, that of course was our problem, and yet nobody was saying anything. The US government 
didn't say anything until February of 2018, eight months later. None of the companies said anything. I just couldn't understand this, this silence around what was starting to become clear to be the biggest cyber attack in history. So what are your conclusions there? I mean, why the, was the silence coordinated? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, President Trump has uh, a peculiar affection for Russian leaders. Was it at all related to that? I never really got to the bottom of why it took so long to attribute NotPetya. Because after all, ESET, the Slovakian cybersecurity firm, they found forensic connections between NotPetya and the black energy attacks, which they called telebots, but you know everybody else calls Sandworm. Within days of NotPetya, they could kind of show this sort of interlinked um, series of components used in those early attacks that evolved into NotPetya. It was very clear that this was Russia to me from the beginning. And of course, it's like, who else is going to be targeting Ukraine? I mean, it, it's, it's confusing because... NotPetya spilled out to Russia, too. And that, I think, speaks to the fact that the damage done to the West was probably collateral damage, like the damage done to Russia. But it was totally avoidable collateral damage. It, could, it would have been easy for NotPetya's creators to filter its infections using the actual tax ID numbers that were available in the MEDOC software that they hijacked. They could have made sure that the attack only hit Ukraine, and they didn't. But yeah, I don't, I don't know why the U.S. government was so slow to do this. I think uh, maybe the attribution took a long time. It, it could be also a factor that nobody wanted to go into the Oval Office and talk to President Trump, of all people, about Russian hacking, that that was just a kind of uncomfortable subject and one that you were not rewarded for bringing up in a, an, an intelligence briefing. I ultimately couldn't kind of get the palace intrigue in the White House to understand why it took so long. But eventually, I did hear the story from you know Tom Bossert of the decision to finally call out Russia eight months later. You know, I, I don't want to take credit away from the White House for eventually acting and calling out Russia, imposing sanctions. In fact, coordinating this, this attribution that all five Five Eyes carried out together, Canada, uh, Australia, the UK, and New Zealand, all together named Petya as a Russian act. It took a long time to do it. The real mistake, in my eyes, is that we waited until it hit us to make that call. When everyone knew that this highly dangerous group of hackers was escalating its, its attacks on Ukraine and doing things that should not have been acceptable in the first place. We waited for it to, to bite us before we took action. That's author Andy Greenberg. We were discussing his book, Sandworm, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. We'll be publishing an extended version of this interview in the next few days. Watch for it in your CyberWire podcast feed. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, 
and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.